You can forget a lot of things, Foster Care Nation, but never forget this. You're listening to Unparalleled Studios. I signal. Okay, citizens of Foster Care Nation, we want to hear from you. We want to hear any stories that you'd like to share with us, anything that might be funny, inspiring, touching, heartfelt, all of those things. That's what people love to hear. So why don't you send us some of your stories? You can reach us at our voicemail line at 413-FOSTER-3. Again, that's 413-FOSTER-3. Now, we're going to assume that if there's any privacy rules that you need to follow, you've already followed them and changed any names that need to be changed because we will play some of this on the air. We look forward to hearing from you. Now, this voicemail has a limit of about, I think, 10 or 15 minutes, so anything longer than that, just contact me at jason at fostercarenation.com and we can sit down and talk about your whole story. Foster Care Nation! Listen up. This is... Foster Care and Unparalleled Training! Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey with Jason and Amanda. And today we have Natasha and Rachel with us from the Just As Special podcast, where they like to talk about things that we like to talk about. They are, um, Natasha is a foster parent and our foster mom, I guess I should be specifically say, and Rachel is a mentor to kids in care. How are you guys doing today? Great. Thanks for having us. Hey, we're excited. Yeah, we're excited. Yeah, we're excited to have you guys here because it's not very often we get to talk to people who understands a weird world that we live in. So, Natasha, Rachel, I know you guys co-host the, the podcast Just as Special. And for those of you who may not have found them already, go find them. Uh, how long have you guys been doing it? So, it's been about a year and a half now. And what's interesting is we started the podcast as I was starting becoming a foster parent. So, the podcast has grown as... I've grown as a foster parent and um, Rachel's had a little more experience, right? In foster care volunteering. Yeah, it's been, no, I would say um, I probably started decently similar, um, probably like six months prior. So it's been about like two and a half years, I feel like in, in the works. Okay. Well, we, we started podcasting pretty close to the same time, I think, but um, we might have a little bit of a jump start on you on the whole foster care thing because we are 12 almost 13 years in yeah 12 almost 13 years into it yeah that sounds about right Um, you're old (laughs) i'm old enough i can't remember this stuff (laughs) so yeah what 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 was been the biggest surprise for you so far you know because you you know obviously you know natasha you're doing the foster mom stuff and rachel you're being you know you're mentoring kids in care so what's been the most surprising thing you guys have seen that you didn't expect to come come into you know to to face that's a really great question yeah i also became a first-time parent becoming a foster parent so it really was jumping in (laughs) with both feet um into the unknown And I would say one of the things that really surprised me was 
I guess how much personal growth it really required of me to really show up in the best way for these kids. Um, and it was really learning by fire, not having a lot of parenting experience before. Um, so yeah, I think that that's a huge thing. I think also too, this whole experience has brought Rachel and I a lot closer together. And that's been really interesting too, because she does have experience on the volunteering end of foster care. And then she's also volunteered at a women's prison where she's worked with uh, many women who had kids in foster care. So she's just able to bring a different perspective to me. Um, we know when I'm frustrated and I'll call her and I'll be like, I don't understand like why this kid reacted in this way. And, um, she's able to give me a lot of times, like another perspective and more understanding of the situation. So that's been really great. Rachel, that's gotta be crazy. Like having, having worked with these, these moms in the past and having that perspective, I mean, my God, couldn't we all have used some of that experience ahead of time? Cause there's a whole lot. We didn't know when we walked into <laughs> it. Uh, what, what have you learned yeah. from that? Um, you know, I've, I've learned a lot and I think, um, patience too has been a huge part of that. Um, but also too is, um, it's, I've definitely learned to have to take a step back and just listen. I think a lot of times, whether it's being a mentor or being in prison, um, as a volunteer, I always want to like push forward and kind of just be like, you know, the, the vocal therapist. Um, but I think that taking a step back and listening and seeing, you know, different sides of it and seeing, especially in prison is seeing that, you know, foster care really is generational and it can be right. Um, and so to hear the mother side specifically, cause I only see the woman in prison, um, just to hear them talk about their kids and the love that they have for their kids. Um, but the most eye opening and surprising thing, um, has been asking them, well, when's the last time you talked to your child? And a lot of times they'll be like, oh, well, it's been years because there's fear or there's um, sometimes they feel like their kid could resent them. So it's all coming from different types of fear. Or maybe their child said, talk to me when, you know, your your lifestyle is, is X, Y and Z. Um, so I think a huge thing is just been um, trying to encourage them, um, which I have seen a lot of growth in that. Um, to help them you kind of restore those relationships and to maybe when the time is right to reach back out to those kids. Wow, that would take a lot of growth for some of us to, to have that as a as a mentality. You know, Natasha, I'm going to ask you because like you're in the world, same world as me and Amanda are, right? We're, as foster parents, we don't deal with, with the women, especially who, who are in prison you know, for whatever reason. And so we don't have that perspective. Mostly, I don't know about your experience, mostly – most of the bio parents we've met feel like we're trying to steal their kids from them. And I understand that. I can, I can understand that perspective 100%, but they don't really tend to have a lot of trust in us when they meet us. They don't tend to really want to have a whole lot to do with us. And it's really hard for us to gain their perspective. Have you had the same problem with kids in your home? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I would say my experience has kind of been non-traditional when it comes to the kids in my home. So we do respite short-term care. And then for, we've had now two like long-term placements. And the first one, parents' rights were already terminated when the child came into our home and there was actually um, no contact order with one of the parents. Um, so, and then the other parent was allowed to have contact, but yeah, I wasn't really um, interested in reaching out through us. Um, which I can understand. Right. Yeah. Cause there is that idea of, you know, definitely there was that idea of like, you've taken this child from me. 
Um, yeah. And then, um, it's interesting because, um, our experiences have more been, um, like, it's interesting too, cause like the kids who've come into our home have been in previous homes. So sometimes there's tension between other foster families, which is something I didn't expect. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever experienced that, but maybe a kid's coming to your home from another home and there's tension there, or a kid's coming to your home to a different home. And there's that tension there in that handoff. I don't know. Um, that's something I didn't expect because I thought it'd be like, oh, like as foster parents, we're kind of like all on the same team. But having had some experiences now, I can kind of like understand that, you know, it brings foster care brings up so many feelings in you. And I think it brings out the best in humanity and it can also bring out the worst. And so sometimes there's a lot of tension there in previous caregivers or future caregivers. Oh, absolutely. There is, you know, and you would think, like you said, we're all on the same team here. So why not work together? Right. Um, what made you decide that you wanted to be a foster parent? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so I had the opportunity to live in Scotland for a few months in my early 20s. And I lived with a Scottish family who I had no idea. I didn't meet them before. I just met them when I was there. Um, but they opened up their home to... Um, like American students and um, other people like in their community that needed a place to stay. And I just thought it was so beautiful that they had such an open home. Like a lot of people who felt like they didn't have a place in society could like come to their home and feel so welcome. And yeah, they, ex they opened their home for months, right. To, or sometimes years to different people. And so I was like, you know, that's something I really want in my own life. And so, um, yeah, when I got older and had a partner and, you know, had been married a while, we were like, Hey, like, we feel like this could be a point in time that we could have that open home. And we look to foster care as a way to have that. And it is right. Cause as you guys know, there's professionals, foster care professionals coming in and out of your home all the time. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting experience for us. And I love that I'm able to meet people that I wouldn't have met otherwise. Okay. The most important question is, did you learn to like haggis while you were there? Yeah, I didn't mind it. Honestly, it's just like a heavy meatloaf. That's like ground up. It was fine. It was fine with me. I liked it. I don't know if I've been brave enough to try it. We stopped at a Scottish restaurant once and they had it and she looked at me. She's like, don't do it. She knows I'm I'm adventurous. I'll try it. But <laughs> yeah, it was it wasn't bad. I've had worse, way worse things. So. See, next time she tells me no, I'm going to eat it. That's all there is to it. I'll say, look, Natasha when told me to. to. When it comes to food, I think you should try everything once. <laughs> almost, almost. Trust me. <laughs> Trust There's me. There's some weird things out there, but yeah. Yes, there is. I won't, I won't die. I've got a few things I won't dive off into, but yeah, I, I was, I was a linguist in the, in the military for a little while. And so I had some cultural stuff that went, wow, I should never have even tried to put that in my mouth. That was horrible. So <laughs> yeah. That, do you feel, I'm interested. Do you feel like having had experiences with other cultures made you, um, maybe more available in some ways to be a foster parent, just because like how I see it is like foster parenting is a lot of just dealing with culture clashes, right? Oh yeah. And I wish I could say yes. And I was, I was that, that self-aware. And honestly, when I was in the military, I was a young guy and I was really concerned about how much alcohol I could drink on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. I was just that typical mm -hmm. young dude who's just, yeah, I, I had no, my, I, my head was not in the right place. I was just a young, stupid kid trying to find his way in the world. So I can't say that has, it has been something I've seen a lot of since we've started this journey. 
because um, and the listeners have heard me say this. If you're if you've listened to me talk more than once, you've heard me say this more than once. I am what you might call ambiguously brown. Nobody can guess what I am at a glance. I will my 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 racial makeup will be guessed at everything you've ever heard. I mean, all, the only thing I haven't been been guessed at, I think, would be Asian. And that's about it. You know, so I have experienced all kinds of weird culture things my entire life. I had a, a black friend in high school who who always swore I was Middle Eastern. I've been told to go back to my own country and hate and anger. And so I have found that that culture stuff is there everywhere. And people don't realize it unless you happen to not fit the paradigm of the person you're around. And fortunately for me, over the years, I have learned how to kind of kind of melt into cultures, regardless of where I'm at. And so that, that's been one of the interesting things for me. Now, Amanda over here, she is very pale and red-haired, and she is, um, she is as, as Irish as they come, so <laughs> she doesn't have that same, that same benefit. But some of the culture stuff that, that we've had to overcome has been really interesting because we just, you know, I don't think most people are aware of it. Most people are not aware of how much that, that actually affects who you are, what your life looks like. I had a friend of mine, um, the guy that I worked with here recently, who looked at me straight faced and told me that he doesn't think racism exists in America anymore. And I'm like, right. um, I, I wish the listeners could see our faces right there. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But he's he's a he's a white guy who lives way out in the country, out in the woods. And in his world, he doesn't see it. It doesn't exist for him because it's not around him. You know, he lives in a pretty monochromatic society and he doesn't ex- experience it. And I, he may have caught me on the wrong day and he might have gotten a sermon that lasted about 20 minutes explaining some things that I have experienced in the recent past and gone, hey, dude, this is alive and well in America, in every culture in America. And so it, it's really, it's something that we've had to learn how to overcome because we've had families who, you know, some bio family who was mad because, you know, we, we maybe weren't black enough or not white enough or not, you know, they couldn't nail us down. And I don't know, our, our culture is just... In large part, for us, it's just a conglomeration of what we've experienced in this life. Mm. Hey there, Foster Care Nation. If you'd like to find yourself in a group with like-minded people, head over to Facebook, and you can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. We've got a group over there where we talk about foster care, we talk about adoption, and we talk about all the things related. If your podcast player allows it, You can also reach down and hit that subscribe button so you get notified every week when we put up uploads. Every Tuesday, a new episode comes out. We'd love to see you next week. Now back to the show. How have you guys like navigated like through that with specifically like biological families that have kind of, you know, been like you're not black enough or white enough or whatever? Well, I'm not going to speak for Amanda here, (laughs) but I am very forcefully me. 100%. 100%. And if you don't like it, I'm okay with that. I'm really okay with that. Um, and the thing is, I won't let you get away with silly stuff like that. I don't let people, people come up with, you know, I don't care if you're, if you're Latino. I don't care if you come from a, a black background. And, and if you want to try and treat me in a racist manner, I will call it out out loud, especially if it's because you think I'm something you're not. And I just don't put up with it. I, I don't talk that way. I don't, life is too short. To be based basing your decisions on melanin based hate, just because your melanin is different than mine, don't mean either one of us need to waste our time and energy hating on somebody. That's stupid, and I will call it out out loud every time. I made a few people angry at me, 
But in the long run, most of them get over it. And, and we just become humans to one another. And that has been the biggest overcoming factor. It doesn't always work. And those people still don't like me. And that's okay. Yeah, you can't please everyone, right? Yeah, it's interesting that you describe yourself as ambiguously brown because Rachel and I also experienced that. So our mom is from Iran and immigrated here. And what's interesting too is, so my partner is also a redhead. <laughs> my husband, <laughs> he's a redhead, very white. Uh, doesn't like the sun, you know, that white. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> burn, burn, burn. And, right, right. Yeah, he's like always trying to find the shade and I'm like trying to like lay out in the sun. Um but what's interesting is foster care brought up for me, you know, becoming a first time parent through becoming a foster parent. But for me, a lot of the culture clashes that I didn't realize we had, because um, in some ways we were really raised with a really Middle Eastern mindset. You know, my mom having grown up in Iran um, and it's a lot different. Like the American view of parenting is so much different than the Middle Eastern view of parenting. So it actually brought up some really interesting conversations between my husband and I about um, just, you know, realizing those differences and how, you know, in some ways we were raised so differently. And then what will that look like right in our own home, in our own culture that we're creating together? Talk about culture classes. I was raised in a, in a religious, wait, I'm, I can't say cult. If mom hears it, she gets mad at me when I say that. In a <laughs> very conservative religious group, we'll call it that. And, and my wife, on the other hand, was raised in, in a drug house. My dad and all my my family, my dad's side of the family were all police officers. My wife's family was all the outlaws. <laughs> imagine, imagine what a family reunion looks like for us. There are warrants there. <laughs> wow. You know, so yeah, we have something very similar. Even though we're, we we grew up, I think we always lived within you know. 20, 20, 30 yeah, 20, 30 miles of one another, even though we never knew it. Wow. But we grew up in the same geographical location. But our culture was so different because of what our family believed. Yeah, and I think that's so true and applies across just foster parenting in general, because a lot of the work we do is with older children. And so they've had sometimes years, right, of living with their own biological families or other foster families. By the time they get to our house, they have their own culture, right? They have their own perspectives and ideas about life and their ways of doing things, you know, and we know kids too, right? Their brains aren't fully developed. So a lot of times they really fall into that black and white either or dichotomous thinking. And so it's been really interesting um, for me to kind of see that play out in our home. But it's also been, I think, a really healthy way to view foster parenting because if a teenager comes into my home and uses what I would describe as like a disrespectful tone of voice, you know, rather than being like, oh, obviously they're trying to be disrespectful to me. I can take a step back and be like, hey, maybe that's how people talked in their home. And, you know, maybe I, I need to just say, hey, like, just so you know, that's how I describe that tone of voice is something I would define as disrespectful. I'd like to be talked to in a different way. And that opens up more a conversation than this kid feeling defensive or misunderstood. Does that actually work? Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes it, it definitely does work. I've I had mean, a lot of teenagers and mine don't seem to know what conversation looks like. Mm, mm -hmm. I mean, it depends, right? I mean, our, mostly our, well, all of our experience with teenagers have been with teenage girls. So I don't know if it's the same for you. Well, we've had a couple teenage girls and quite a few teenage boys. And honestly, I think the Part of the complication for us is that I was raised in that very conservative background. My dad, 
God love him. You know, he's not here anymore. I can't, I can't bust his chops anymore. Um, and we had a great relationship. I always mention that just so nobody thinks I'm trying to bag on my dad here, but, but my old man, he referred to himself as a beneficial dictator. And I went, um, okay, I guess that's the way you raise kids. The iron fist, you do what I say, or you deal with me. And we've been blessed enough that our older kids, our oldest daughter, Arissa, would have been, I think, 25 this year. CJ's 23 right now. And Austin is about to turn 21. That's our oldest three kids. And that was a methodology I used with them when they were little. Because I didn't know what I was doing. I just did what I, what I grew up with. And as we, after that, we stepped into this foster system. And our two middle kids taught me a lot. And our two younger kids taught me even more. And I realized that I could come at it from the way my dad did and it was going to be about as successful for me as it was for him, which was not at all. When it comes to that, we eventually became good friends again and, and you know, we were really close for a long time, but, but there was a lot of those years where it was, it was a lot of struggle between us working through that stuff. And it was been the fact that we've had so many kids teach us different age levels, different experiences that has changed who my parenting is today to the point where I was sitting in this, this office the other day and one of my kids is in the other room having a meltdown and I called him in here, come here, buddy. And I talked to him, let my chair out, you know, so, so I get the air out of my chair and get down low so he, he can kind of look down at me and I'm really obvious, slow breathe. And I slow my voice and I slow, lower my tone and the pitch and calm him down. And so, you know, when we get it worked through it, whatever it is, all right, but well, thanks for talking to my hand, give me knuckles. Boom. He turns around and walks out. And my oldest son happened to be here that, that day because he, he doesn't live here anymore. He's grown up and has his own place. And he looks at me. He says, where the hell was this guy when I was that size? <laughs> And I'm like, yeah, you were busy building him. He didn't know what he was doing. <laughs> that guy was an idiot, bud. Sorry. But we right. we had that blessing of being able to have these different generations of kids, more or less, as we raise them. That means that for the last decade and for the next one, I've had teenagers in my house. And I'm just going to tell you, that's <laughs> that blessing comes with a price. Mm-hmm. Yeah, two decades of teenagers will make you crazy. Yeah, I could. See I can't that. imagine. I can't imagine. And beyond like learning, though, I think that what's interesting too is just seeing Natasha's journey of like going from because right now she has like a young boy in her house, and so I think it's it's interesting to see how her parenting changes based off of the gender and how old the kid is, but also too like what is that kid's personality like too, and so kind of like adjusting to that each individual kid too, I think is has been very important, but something I've seen Natasha do oh yeah because we've lived in this world where everybody wants to be pc and everybody wants to talk about how we have to treat everybody the same i'm like they're not all the same i want to tell you i have a 14 year old daughter and that 14 year old daughter girl if you're listening hush don't pay attention to this part (laughs) she is smart she is well behaved she is easy to i mean right now at this point in our family's journey she's probably the easiest child i have and that's saying something. She's a 14-year-old girl. Like, 14-year-old girls are known to be going through some stuff. Right. But yeah, but she's intelligent, and she questions the world around her. And when she sees things that are not right, she stands up for it. Because our daughter is mixed. And so she gets it all the way around. She's got a white mom. She had a black dad. You know, she goes to school with kids that don't understand it and don't get it. But she stands up for herself. And, you know, I'd like to be a little proud for that because most kids... At 14, you know, they're just, they're listening to music, they're doing their thing, they're doing their makeup, they're hanging with friends, 
you know, but she's she's trying to make a difference in her world at 14. She's thinking. Her brain actually functions, and that's amazing. And I promise you, I cannot treat my other kids the same way I treat her. Because if I was to do that, it would fall apart. And I definitely can't treat her the way I treat the other kids because, again, she'd probably fall apart. So understanding not only that difference in age and some of the gender differences and the culture differences and then the history. Right. Uh, That's what I was going to mention, too, because that other layer of trauma. Right. And it's interesting, too, because, you know, they they tell you in foster parenting training, like you can't parent kids in care as you would parent your own biological children. And it's interesting too, like all the creative ways that, I mean, I think foster parenting, if you're going to do it right, really demands a lot of creativity, right? Because you have to navigate these different challenges and you don't have the whole story pretty much ever, right? On the kid and what's happened to them and having to kind of like at each developmental stage, right? Try and um, navigate things like the kid in our home right now, anything around... Like personal hygiene is a huge. <laughs> that's a that's a teenage right? thing too. Right. So yeah, trauma oh, yeah. on top yeah. of teenage. Yeah, yeah. He's not a teenager. He's elementary age. But yeah, I, and that comes with some of that too, right? An elementary age boy. But um, I was interesting because I did this foster parenting training, where um, it was actually through horse therapy, and it was fascinating because they talked about some of the similarities between um, horses that have had hard backgrounds and kids who have had hard backgrounds. And I had got an idea after doing the training that like he really hates brushing his teeth. So I was like, hey, what if in the morning we brush our teeth together? And so now every morning he's like, all right, yeah, let's go brush our teeth. And, um, you know, because if if you're with a horse and the horse is scared of something, if you touch the thing they're scared of, it can make them less scared because they're like, oh, you know, this person touched it and they're fine. So I was like, what if I brush my teeth with him? Because that's what a trigger is, right? As you're like really fearful and then he'll be like oh yeah you know things are fine and it's something we can do together and elementary age kids right a lot of what they want is that parallel quote-unquote like play or parallel doing things together and that's how they can learn so yeah it's interesting because like yeah with an average nine-year-old kid I wouldn't be like let's brush our teeth together right I'd be like get in there and brush your teeth (laughs) that's how it's going this morning so yeah it's interesting to see those different ways you can be creative hey there foster care nation We'd like to take a quick minute to step out of the podcast here and ask you guys for a little bit of support. If you could share an episode with people, friends, in a group, with family, anywhere where there's somebody who would like to hear this. Also, if you'd like to join us and support our mission, a couple dollars a month would be really helpful. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash foster care nation. Now back to the show. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever heard of um, if you've ever heard Rebecca Britt talk. Um, she has a podcast called Stable Moments, and she uses equine therapy for um, for for working with kids from hard places. And we interviewed her. Oh, a long time ago, back yeah. in the beginning. Yeah, a long time ago. She was probably <laughs> one of our first guests, actually. Um, but she, uh, yeah, I think her podcast is called Stable Moments, and, and she's she's been really big into the value of equine therapy with with kids who are from hard places. And she talked about the way that, that she could model for kids how to take a horse that's nervous and, and teach a kid how to how to use their body language to calm the horse down. And what these kids don't realize is while they're doing that, they're learning how to calm themselves down. Mm-hmm. And be more embodied, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That, that being in your body thing. You know, this is something we've talked about a lot lately in our house because one of our kiddos deals a lot with dissociation. 
And when he is, when his, when his head goes crazy, when something hits him, he completely leaves the room. Mm-hmm. His body's sitting there. I can see it. He doesn't know his body's still there. He's just he goes deep inside of his head, or he'll have a freak out moment. And we've been working with a play therapist that has really helped him a lot through that journey. But it's super difficult. And if you don't know anything about that, that looks for him. It looked a lot like a teacher who would do or say something that upset him, and then he disappears. And then she she would be talking to him, and he's he doesn't he's not ignoring her. He doesn't hear her. He's he has because he has a very deep trauma history, and so as that happens, she get upset with him and tell him, "You need to have your ears checked. You need to you need to pay attention. You quit daydreaming." She jump on him a little bit to the point I had to go to the to the teacher and say, "Hey, let me tell you a little bit about his trauma history and what you're actually seeing. This is not a kid daydreaming. This is not a kid ignoring you. This, this is, is a, a bad kid. It's a kid in trauma." He's in a trauma reaction. And when you start jumping on him about his trauma reaction that he cannot control, let me tell you the damage you're doing. Now stop it. And we had that conversation, and it it seemed to help for a minute. but For a little bit. Yeah, for a minute. <laughs> we ha- we've had to rehab that conversation, but a lot of people have never heard of that. And I'm, I'm just happy to hear that you guys are getting got some of that in the actual training that you've been in because we didn't have that. Yeah, when we went through training, there was not a whole lot of – talk about trauma and dissociation and rad and all the different diagnoses and everything that there is now back when we started people didn't talk about mental illness you you hit it you didn't put it out there you didn't shine a line on it you didn't try to find somebody to help you with it you hit it you're more or less afraid to have a child labeled i think is really what what we Mm -hmm. picked up on a lot you know have you seen parents or, or organizations that are afraid of labeling kids I guess what I've seen more so is like um, people not wanting to go through the process of getting a psyche valve for a kid because of the length of time it takes or the expense. And yeah, I think that's something that's so detrimental, right? Because um, mental health is huge for kids in care, right? That mental health support. I guess one of the good things coming out of COVID is I feel like trauma is now something that everyone is aware of. And they're more willing to talk about it. And yeah, there's that light shining on it. Whereas before, Amanda, like you're talking about before, it was like, no, don't even talk about it at all. So I think that's something that's really positive. And then having gone through training recently, there's a huge emphasis on um, trust-based relational intervention, the TBRI way of parenting, um, which is something we practice in our home. And like you were saying, Jason, like when you go... um, yeah, to the kid's school and talk to the teacher, like there's often that disconnect. Right. And I feel like, I feel like it would be so amazing if every educator had to take a TBRI type class so that they can start noticing these things because yeah, it's not that a kid is trying to be bad. Right. And we, when we look through it through the lens of, Hey, this kid's just trying to survive, then it's so much healthier. I feel like for the kid. And then as a caregiver or parent, it's so much healthier for you too to have that viewpoint. Oh, yeah. And beyond that, too, I think that it's really confusing for the kid if they're going to school. They they don't know if they're daydreaming. They don't know what's happening. Right. Like they need someone to kind of guide them. And if the teacher's yelling at them saying you're doing something wrong or like Amanda, like you said, like he's not a bad kid, but the teacher's making him feel like he is this bad kid. I think it gets very confusing for that child. So teachers, I think, had more training around that. I think it could push the kid forward instead of like at home, it's like you're doing all this work and then they go to school and then it's like two steps back. Oh, absolutely. Because 
that's the thing with any type of trauma. It's always two step forward, you know, 50 million steps back. And when you don't have that consistency from home to school to the -hmm. doctor's office, you know, it's really difficult. And you take a kid from a hard place and you're constantly throwing them in other hard places. And it doesn't help at all. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the doctor's office because that is like something huge. The doctor, the dentist, orthodontist. Yeah. I also feel like if these people could have a training on, yeah, trauma and kids and how to make kids feel safe, you know, because I have had to deal with like massive, massive behavioral things around that. You know, it can ruin an entire day for a kid. Well, and police officers too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We've had our experiences with that. You're right. And these people are supposed to be trained, I thought, on how to de-escalate situations. And sometimes all that's happening is a situation is getting escalated. And then I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but sometimes I feel judgment based on how I'm de-escalating a child. And I'm actually the one getting this child de-escalated. But everyone around me is like, that's not how I would have done it. And I'm like, well, that's why you guys had to call me <laughs> to come here. Because why are you just your way? Yeah. Why are you babying him? Why, why don't you just tell him like it is? Right. And those are the conversations I've had with people as well. The one advantage I have, I'm sitting on this Zoom call here with the, the three <laughs> ladies, is I can put on my hate me face and bow up a little bit and get really loud. And I promise you, people will shut up and listen. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the benefit of that has been that I have been in a principal's office where I walked in the office and then said, I need to close the door because the children in the school do not hear, need to hear what I'm about to say. We've had those conversations, you know, and, you know, the look here, we're going to talk serious now, you know, and, and just told them what, what I had to say. And they will sit back and, and listen typically at that point. I don't know that the average mother who goes into a, a school's principal's office gets the same reaction partly just because i'm big and scary and and have a deep voice and 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 you know that i I can be that person if i need to but that's something that i think everybody needs to hear is that you have a way to empower yourself in those situations to go in and part of our job is to be that kid's advocate right absolutely just the same as i would for my biological children foster kids adoptive it doesn't matter if you're a kid in my house you're inside of my you're inside a middle clan here which means that i have to be willing to kill somebody to protect you that's that's just part of the, how you how you become part of our our place and i am supposed to be willing to stand up and do that for you and what i've seen is kids see that and they suddenly feel like they're a part of something they feel safe and protected in that moment in a place, a lot of times, like you mentioned with a school where the teacher starts saying something, they're already in their own head space, and then they get they start to believe that they're a bad kid. They're not smart. They're stupid. You know, and that's that's part of what we've had to do to try and try and just let them know that hey, you are here, you're protected, and nobody, and I mean nobody, gets to push in on your world and tell you that you're not the amazing kid that you are. And that's had been something we've learned over the last dozen years or so is that part of our job is just to be these kids biggest cheerleaders and their protector at the same time you know i'm curious where have you guys found like a a moment where that was necessary in your life and and that you've been able to do that is is there something that you had to do consistently to to help those kids feel that way to to feel that that strong sense of unity with you yeah what really resonated with me when when you were talking is that like advocacy piece and that protector piece and i think with my first like long-term placement, um, 
I had a lot of gut feelings that I pushed down because I thought, oh, I haven't been a parent before. And, um, you know, these professionals are telling me something different than what my gut tells me, but like, they're the ones who know, right. What to do. But at some point, very quickly, you amass more hours with the child in your home than anyone else on the team. Right. Even if they've been with that child for several years or just not seeing them 24 seven. So that's something that I learned. And then especially too, on our podcast, we interview people every episode and then talking to a lot of other foster parents too. Um, yeah, that's something that gets awoken in you if it isn't already is that, you know, you have to be that fierce advocate and protector. Otherwise the system is just going to eat you up because, you know, it's a broken system. And, um, yeah, I think especially being a woman of color to going through society, like how you're talking about Jason, like you get a different response being a male. A lot of the time, I totally see that, you know, play out, but I've had to learn like, Hey, if you have a gut feeling a fight for it. Um, so that's something that I've stepped into more and more. And even if it goes against some professional guidance that I'm getting, if I'm still getting that gut feeling of like, Hey, this doesn't sit right. Speaking up about it and letting people know why I feel the way I feel has been really powerful. And, um, in our current situation, we've had to do a lot of advocating with the school, um, and some educating too, around like, Hey, we want there to be consistency between our home environment and the school environment. Otherwise this kid's getting all these different signals and it's confusing, right? It's confusing to be a kid in general. So let's, let's alleviate that as much as possible. And oftentimes, you know, it looks against what they think is the right thing. Cause I think some, what I've learned too, good intentions does not equal good outcomes, right? We can be trying our best all day long. And the school can be trying their best or whatever, but that doesn't mean that there's going to be good outcomes. And so much of what these kids need are is structure. Um, something that really hit me hard is I read somewhere it's like, um, you know, like it's not like these kids weren't necessarily loved before, right? Because in their biological homes, they probably did were loved, right? But it was that structure that was missing that enabled safety or all of those other healthy boundaries. And so, yeah, I think that's what I see a lot is people think, you know, I need to make up for all these hardships this kid experienced. And one, that's not possible. And two is, yeah, like what's really needed a lot of the time is that structure and that structure is that love, right? Well, some of these kids come with zero structure. As a matter of fact, the very first two kids that we fostered, I can tell stories on them because we adopted them. Yeah. And <laughs> but but the the caseworker when they first told us about them, she says they're um they're rambunctious. And if you know caseworkers, they don't use words like rambunctious. They they yeah. they use code <laughs> words. An extreme, yeah. So now I'm nervous. <laughs> and she well then when she came for the the visit like a weekend, she goes, "Wow, these are the same kids." The last time I saw them in, in the last house, they were on the kitchen table jumping off constantly and they couldn't get them to stop. Again, back up to that whole part about me being the big, scary, hairy guy. And I have a, I have more of an ability to say no and be heard, I think, than than what maybe some other people do. So, But yeah, that, it, it really worked well there. But sometimes that structure is just a completely non-existent. And sometimes the love is non-existent. And sometimes that, that connection, that attachment piece is so missing. And there's so many parts of this that, that we've had to learn about. I mean, my goodness, if we did, if we became first parents at this point, like we'd be genius parents, I think. <laughs> now, I have two little ones who will disagree with you. I am not yes. that much of a genius. I'm crazy and horrible. I made them fold laundry this morning. Can you believe that? It was almost like some sort of abuse. <laughs> yeah. So but I mean, our, our oldest children tell us all the time, you know, you guys are not the parents that that we had, you know, what, what happened, 
you know, and the, and the thing is, is it's trial by fire. You know, you're in the situation with these kids and every kid is not the same. They're not going to respond the same. They're not going to act the same. You know, you have to come up with different creative ways, you know, just like you said, offering to brush your teeth with a nine-year-old. You know, I send my six-year-old in. I'm like, hey, go brush your teeth. I don't go in there with my six-year-old. I may check on him every now and again to make sure he's actually in there doing it. You better check on that one. But it's different from kid to kid, and each kid requires something different, a little bit different, and you have to be willing to change and shape and mold yourself in the process. Yeah, I mean, I'd be interested to hear from you guys, too, because you've been doing this so many years, and, you know, most foster parents, they close their homes within two years. So, like, what what do you think has given you that ability to also stay close as a couple, right? Because it's a huge stressor to a relationship. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. How have you been able to like navigate that? And then like, what makes you keep showing up and doing this work? Well, first of all, we have a guy that yeah. we talk to. We have Dr. Tom. Yeah. Everybody should have a, their version of Dr. Tom. The man's a genius. And anybody who talks smack on a, on a therapist, I'm sorry that you don't know the value. But yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I praise sing the praises of Dr. Tom all the time. Go ahead. I was just interrupting because you're talking good about Dr. Tom. I had to jump. No, in. you're but it, it is hard on a relationship. You know, it will cause stressors. So have an outlet, you know, find, find people that know kind of what you're going through. And as far as doing it long term, you know, the biggest thing, and, I, and I'll speak for myself is when I was growing up, I didn't have a stable, loving environment. You know, Jason said, I, I grew up in a drug house, and, and I did, and I grew up with a lot of abuse and things like that, and I grew up with things that children shouldn't grow up with. And even when I was a little girl, I made a vow to myself that I was going to help kids, that I I wanted to be what I didn't have for kids. And so that pushes me all the time to continue to do what we do. And there was a time where we did take a break. We stepped back and, and we took almost a two year break. Um, but we had a lot of things going in our, going on in our life. Our daughter passed away, you know, and so we needed to regroup as a family and come back together and, and deal with a lot of grief and hardships. But I mean, the biggest thing is, I keep showing up because I needed and wanted someone to show up for me. Yeah, it's funny. I come from a totally different place. You know, I mentioned that Amanda and I grew up in such different backgrounds, and I, I'm no longer a member of that conservative, um, religious, fundamentalist, extremist group that I that I grew up with. But that doesn't mean that I don't have any any view of spirituality. And I, I truly feel that that God has put us all in the place and time that we're at for a reason. God put us in the moment you're in with the struggles that you have to deal with for a reason that I am on this earth for a reason. And I'm one of the few men that I know who can stand back and say, I know why I'm here. I have a purpose in my life. And this is part of my purpose. God put me here to be a father to the fatherless. That's what I'm here. That's my purpose. And my God, how many men I have met over the, the last couple of years who have no idea why they're on this earth. They have no purpose in life. It, I meet so many guys who, who feel like their purpose is to be able to go to work all week and they can complain about their family while they're at work so that on Friday night they can go home and drink beer and watch sports on the weekend and come to work Monday with a hangover and complain about how horrible their family is again. And I do that again next week and the week after and the week after and it never ends. And I go, wow, what a useless existence you have. What is it like to live without a purpose? 
I have a purpose. God put me on this earth for a reason. And that's what I'm living out. So there's not really much of a question. You know, Amanda mentioned that we, we shut our license after our daughter passed away. We weren't good for anybody at that point. Like we weren't, we weren't ready to, to try and help somebody go into a hard spot. We were in our hard spot. That's actually one of the beliefs I have is there's always a little bit of beauty in, in all the darkness we go through. That's actually where we got into the podcast area is because at some point I'm like, hey, we're not doing anything. I don't like that feeling. And I know that now is not the moment to bring a kid with a hard, a hard story into our house. And it was through Amanda's suggestion that, that I ended up going, all right, let's buy a cheap microphone and go see what we can do with this whole podcast thing. And that's where, where it all started. But every step of it has had something to do with the fact that I was put here in this place for a reason, and that's what I'm going to do. And so that's how we've been able to go through it. It's not a matter of, can we make it through this together? We have to. That's what we're going to do. We've made up our minds. And we have been through some hard situations with some hard kids. Oh, yeah. 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 And some of those stories, maybe someday we'll be able to tell, but some of them we're walking through still currently. But that's what we're here for. We're here because God told us to. And I've yeah, noticed what? you're not supposed to ignore his call. It's kind of when your cell phone rings and your wife's calling or if God's calling. You don't ignore either one of those two calls and your life will be pretty decent. Yeah. What, what I think is so beautiful about what you shared is how you were both equally dedicated to being foster parents and being a foster family. And I think that's something too that is like really powerful in my own life as my partner is equally as dedicated to this work. And I just think like, there's been so many moments where we've had to just encourage each other. And if one of us had been less dedicated from the beginning, I don't think we would both still be here doing it. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's so important. Cause I think sometimes you see like one parent will be more like into the idea of fostering than the other. And I just wonder like, I mean, more power to them, but I was like, I don't know how you make that work for the long run because it is such a stressor on a relationship. And so if you're not both equally dedicated to it, I'm not sure how it can work out, you know, as yeah. easily. I don't think it would work out very well. Not long term. Mm -hmm. You know, but we kind of yeah. started that same place. You know, I was, I, Amanda, she grew up with the idea that she would have at least 12 children, you know, just because she always wanted to have kids. She didn't have a good childhood. She wanted to provide good childhood to other kids. And I, I grew up with, I mean, I don't know. I was a boy. I didn't think about kids. You know, <laughs> I don't know. I was that boy. I didn't have a whole lot of, of direction in my life when I was young. And so I never thought about it much. And then after our second son was born and she could not biologically have any more kids, I was like, oh, we're done. By the time I turn uh, 41, our, our youngest kid will be grown and out of the house. And we're going to be empty nesters. I think all the money we'll be able to put back and save and the places we can go and the things we can do. Yeah, I was 41 a few years ago. And <laughs> our youngest that we currently own is six. So I got a ways to go till we hit that again. But I wasn't thinking that way at all. And it wasn't until one day, you know, and, and again, I don't push religion on anybody. So hopefully everybody can hear that. But, you know, one day God spoke to me just a little bit, just enough. Well, I was, I was listening to something on the radio and it was about kids in care and foster care and kids who need homes to be adopted in. And I heard a guy talking about how if one person out of every third church in America adopted a kid out of the foster care system, I think that was the stat, that the entire system would be emptied out. Something crazy. I was like, well, see, see all those religions. I was still pretty mad at, at God and religion and all that from what I grew up. And I was like, <laughs> you see how, how, you know, 
all, all these religious people think they're so good and high and mighty and, and they're not doing what needs to be done. And about that time, and I'm not going to blame this on, on necessarily God's word. This is my words in my head bringing something to do because I heard, this, heard something in my head. This little voice said, what are you doing, asshole? And I thought, hmm, good point. And that was the first step in the journey. And I, I mentioned something about it to Amanda. And she's like, she's like grabbing books and, and we're doing classes. And it, was, it took just that little bitty nudge. And that's what pushed us into it. But prior to that, I don't think we could have done it well together because we weren't on the same page for that. It was just finding that right moment together. And it's changed every. Our life has been 100% changed by this, I would say. Oh, yeah. Mostly for the better. It's also just like crazy to see, though, that like that was your passion, right? And it started. And just to see it now where you guys have been doing it for so many years that um, you stuck with it. Yes, it's hard. Yes, you have to take breaks. Taking one break, you know, I, I'm honestly surprised it's just one. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's incredible to see that you guys stuck with it and saw it at the light at the end of the tunnel. But you know, when when that's a calling in your life, I don't, it's it'd be awful hard to not do it at this point because we know how hard it's going to be. Because quite honestly. Um, I don't know if it can get much harder than some of the stuff we've been in. And God, that's not a challenge. No, it's not. <laughs> but but we've had some hard moments with some hard situations. But I don't know if we get a choice on whether or not we do this. This is just part of who we are. It's part of our core values. Uh, you know, Rachel, I'm especially curious about you because you have come from such a different angle. And you're you're helping kids in a whole different way. What place, What made you want to do that? Like, I'm, I'm curious. I want to hear what it is about your story that made you want to do that? Yeah. I mean, I'd love to do foster care. Um, I just feel like I'm not ready for that in my particular stage of life, but yeah, you know, I've always just had a fascination of, you know, prison reformation or lack thereof. And just honestly, I was attracted to, to prison, um, reformation and a whole different side. And I was also just really had always a heart for kids. I was a nanny growing up in college years, but I didn't really necessarily. So I had two passions for both of those without understanding that they were connected in a way. So it's kind of just, it was interesting to see how really they are so connected with being involved in both of those. But, you know, there wasn't really like an aha moment where it was like, this is what I wanted to do. It was always just something that I wanted to do since I was very young. And just, you know, since I knew that the timing wasn't right to be a foster parent, it was like, well, how do I get involved at my age, you know, and in my walk of life? So that's what kind of led me to be the mentor side. Well, I'm going to break everything that my mom ever told me. And mom, I'm sorry. I'm going to break the rules here. How old are you? I'm 25. Okay, because you're never supposed to ask a woman her age, I'm told. And you're never supposed no, to get in her purse okay. either. <laughs> that's, that's what my mama taught me. And trust me, you don't get mom's purse. That hurts your knuckles. How about you, Natasha? <laughs> How old are you? Yeah, I'm 31. And so I became a foster parent. I guess I was like, how old was I? 29 or 30. I can't remember exactly. Um, but what was great is I had been with my partner almost 10 years. And I think that was really important because I just think back and I'm like, there's no way we could have foster parented in our first few years of marriage or, you know, when I was younger, I think, um, and the, you know, you mentioned therapy and that's a journey I started actually when I started foster parenting training 
because I realized, oh, there's a lot of things about my childhood that were not okay. <laughs> Let me deconstruct this and make sure I don't repeat, you know, some of the same things that happened to me. And so, yeah, it's just been a really big personal growth journey for me. That's something that's so important is understanding how your past affects your present. And I had no clue about that because quite frankly, I was right. Like I grew up this way and everything that I did made sense and it was right. And it wasn't until I started to understand that that is the way that, you know, no offense, Rachel, in as a 20 something year old, I, I thought I was right. You know, I had the right answers. My sister who has had eight kids, I think she's had eight kids. I lose track. She has a lot of kids. You know, I would see her raising her kids. I, I was still young and, and in the military and single, and I'd see the way she, and I, I might think, oh, she's doing that wrong or this wrong, whatever. And, and you, as a, as a, no, there's no better parent in the world than a, parent, a person with no kids. Um, <laughs> and I'll tell you what you're doing wrong. That is so true. That is so true. Yeah, until you're in it. Or, or you know, a parent of kids in trauma. It's amazing what people don't know what that really looks like and what that means. I mean, my mom and dad would look at us with some of the stuff we've done with these kids, and they're like, why do you do, like, just smack his butt and tell him to stop. I'm like, ah, that There's worked. laws against that, right? Yeah, yeah, that, that worked with some of, our, well, some of our older biological kids. Like, sometimes just a swat on the, on the butt or a, a little brain dust to go, hey, dummy, stop that. And go, oh, shoot, dad's watching. I shouldn't do that. I'm going to get in trouble. But that doesn't work with with a kid who's been beat. You know, I have a, I have a kid tattooed on me over here on my chest. I have, I have all my all my kids that I own are all tattooed up around the family tree over here, and I have a few a handful of kids who are very special um, kids to us that made it onto the the chest here. And and one of them, his kid was abused. I mean, the caseworker said it was one of the worst cases of abuse they'd seen in over a decade there. You could not, like, there's no way you could have reached out and just popped his butt and said, stop that. That would have been so horribly detrimental to him. And it wasn't until we had some experience under our belt that we understood how and why and how you had to do that differently. And some of those lessons are the things that have made all the difference in these kids in, over time. Yeah, I know that's so true. And I that makes me think about, too, like, we live in the same city as a lot of our extended family. And so we've had to do some educating around that, too. And they've been really amazing at really embracing any kid that comes into our home, which is so beautiful because that doesn't always happen. But, um, you know, even just giving a kid a hug can be bad, right? If they're not expecting it, yeah. if it's someone that they don't know, and if they're not initiating. So we've done some education around that of like, hey, you know, always ask for any physical touch. And then for certain kids, we're like, hey, you know, don't even offer a hug. You can offer a fist bump or a high five and then let that kid initiate when they're ready for something beyond that, if they're ever ready for that. But yeah, there is a lot of stuff around that physical touch that, you know, I didn't think about in my own day-to-day -day life, right? And now I feel like how you guys are saying that, you know, foster care really has infiltrated every ever every area of your life, right? It is so central to your life. I see the world so much differently than I saw before. I'm curious because you guys do come from a different culture. Have you had any issues with, with people in your extended family? We did. When we first started this, we knew we had some family members who were going to have some issues with us having kids who looked really, really different. And we went and talked to them before we even did it. We said, look, here's what we're going to do. You're more than welcome to be part of our life. If this is a problem for you, let us know now and we will stay away. That's what we had to do. And and it turned out Amanda's grandma, and I'd let her tell the story, except she had to chase kids or something. She'll be back in a minute. But her grandma, she was 21 years old before she saw her first non-white person in person. She lived that far out in the woods. 
and she grew up with a ton of racism. I mean, Amanda is, um, well, we'll just say close to 40 because I'm not allowed to sell, to tell her age. But so you can only imagine her grandma, she grew up a long time ago in a very rural, very country setting in the middle of Missouri, and there was plenty of racism around. And we were nervous about how she was going to react until one day when baby Carl, um, not a real name, but if anybody's listened to some of our older episodes, we talk about baby Carl. We told his story and baby Carl was with us or was with her, Amanda and her grandma in the grocery store. And there was an older white gentleman in there who was obviously angry because Amanda, the very pale, redheaded, Irish looking woman had a very, very, very dark skinned black baby with her. And he kept giving her the stink eye and, and kept, uh, he, he had this whole thing the whole time. He was, he was trying to let everybody know he was upset about that until her grandma, who used to, to, to believe in some of the same things, she lost her stuff on this guy. And to the point where, she, I mean, she was old enough she could get away with being a little crazy in public. And she jumped this guy's case to the point where he left his cart and left the store. He was like, I'm out. <laughs> this crazy woman's going to beat me up. But it took that much. Uh, it took quite a bit of time for her to get to that point where she had completely changed the way that she approached the idea of different cultures and different races and all of that. Have you guys had any of those same experiences with, within your own extended family as you deal with, with some of those culture and, and race issues? Yeah, that's a great question. So our dad's actually American fully. So he's very white from Minnesota. <laughs> um, so we had a lot of culture clashes within our own home growing up, my mom being Middle Eastern. But um, yeah, our families were kind of already used to that, I think. And um, they've always been really open-minded in terms of race for the most part. So I would say more of the educating we've had to do is around like the savior complex, which is something we're really passionate about speaking out about. Just like you know, cause we come from a very, um, from one side of the family, like extremely like Christian conservative background. And I think sometimes that lends itself to that savior complex and people will be like, Oh, you know, you're so amazing for being a foster parent and opening up your kid to, or open up your home, right. To these kids who like, obviously really need it. And look at the huge difference you're making. And I'm like, no, my mentality is more like, if I don't do it, who is going to do it? Right. <laughs> I'm not like a special person. I'm just like, well, if no one else is going to do it, here I am. And, you know, I think too, the idea of like, I'm not healing a child, right. I I'm doing my best to create an environment where a child can choose healing for themselves, but any healing that occurs is their work, right. It's because they chose it and how amazing that they're choosing this right after having been hurt so deeply. I think that's so beautiful. And I can't take any credit for that. Right. Yeah. I think sometimes there's that mentality of we're swooping in and like doing this amazing stuff. And that's not really how I see it, you know. You know, Natasha, I just want to give you a virtual <laughs> fist bump here because you just <laughs> preach, me and Amanda preach on this quite a bit. I, the, my most hated line is, oh, you guys are such amazing people. There is a special place in heaven for you. <laughs> and I'm like, hopefully it's by the bar because I'm going to need a drink by the time I get there. <laughs> I'm pretty worn out. <laughs> and no, I'm not an amazing person. If you knew me personally, you would know that I have my moments that are just as ugly as anybody else. The difference is, is I can be louder in those moments and I have to work. I have to really focus on that. But I, I don't have that special person moniker on me, I promise. And number two, um, we're not healing anybody. And you said it exactly the way I do. I love that is that my job is not to heal a kid. I don't have that right. My job is just to create the environment where healing can occur. And that's all I can do. 
And that's hard sometimes. I mean, have you had have you had any experience? Because we, we have. Have you had any experience where where you've had kids who you can create that environment and they absolutely refuse the, the healing process at all? Um, yeah. So we had an experience that um, I think it was also crazy too, right? As when you're foster parenting, like you guys kind of alluded to, your real life doesn't stop and real life can be crazy. So I had a situation where I had an emergency surgery and it really just like took me out for months, right? My energy level wasn't the same. I mean, I was really struggling a lot mentally and physically. And uh, we had, we were like two months into our first placement, which was a teenage girl and stuff didn't go super well. And part of it is we didn't know exactly. I mean, it was our first time parenting in general, then that on top of it. And then we were also dealing with um, other losses that had happened very soon to us becoming a foster parent, just like very sudden family losses. And it was a lot. And it got to the point where we were doing the absolute best we could. It just wasn't what was needed. And that was a hard moment to be like, I tried my absolute best, right? I did everything that I knew to do with the knowledge I had at the time. Would I have approached that situation a lot differently now? Absolutely. Would a different approach have changed the ultimate outcome? Probably, maybe not, right? We, we don't know. Um, but yeah, sometimes kids aren't as open or flexible, or maybe I think some of it was like, we should have set some things up differently ourselves. Like, I think there's always that personal responsibility as well. Right. And I think sometimes foster parents, cause it's so, it can be so hurtful. Right. And so painful for a situation not to turn out in a way that anyone would define as, or in a way that you would have defined as success from the beginning. Right. But I think that's a big part of being a foster parent is redefining success. So it got to the point where, um, you know, this kid, um, it was decided what was best is that they move homes um, and, but we still see that kid. Right. And so that's how I would say we redefine success is like, Hey, we're still going to do our best to be a positive influence in this kid's life. Um, unfortunately that couldn't continue to occur in our home. Um, but, you know, this is something that we're still committed to and, yeah, but it's it's so tough. And that's the other thing is like you have your own personal limits, right? Like we're human. And so um, my partner and I, we learned a lot from that experience. And we actually took a break to just deconstruct and like really think through, all right, how are we going to show up in better ways? And like took some time for healing um, from that experience, but also like all the other experiences that we were experiencing at the time. And I think now we're able to show up in a much better way. And I'm so glad we took that break too. I'm so glad we didn't try to just like keep pushing through and keep our home open. Um, and during that time too, we just did respite short-term foster care too. So that was great too. Cause then we were able to have other experiences with other kids and we were able to be like, Oh, okay. Like some kids might respond differently to different things. And um, but yeah, I mean, you do definitely, I think foster parenting teaches you your limits in a way that you might not otherwise experience. As long as you're smart enough to admit that you have limits. Right, right. No, that is true. <laughs> because I think sometimes the default right is to place all the blame on the kid. And it's like, well, that's not that's not fair. You know, we all play a role in the environment that we create. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. As I, that's been something we've had to learn is that, you know, we have limits. And then and again, I'll, I'll go back to that whole mental health side, you know, it's taken a guy with a PhD in psychology to be able to convince me that there are times when I need to draw a boundary and say, yes, I cannot, I can't handle past this. 
you know, this, this is more than I can effectively handle and other people, including myself will suffer if I don't put some boundaries in place and be willing to admit that, I mean, I don't know if you guys have found this out, but it turns out I'm not actually Superman. I don't know if you guys have right. learned that about yourself right. yet. I, oh, I've learned it. I've my hand is up for the listeners. I'm like raising my hand. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I'm just I'm not that guy. I can't be that guy. And it took me a lot of years to to figure out because I have I have a pretty high tolerance. I can deal with a lot. We've had what twenty somewhere between twenty and thirty kids come through our house. They have taught me so much. I can handle almost anything. But that's still almost, it's still not a full-blown anything. So knowing what those boundaries are and what those limits are has been crucial to us being able to be successful in the long term. And I love what you said, the redefining success idea. Because when we started this whole process, I'm pretty certain that, that success, the idea you have about what success looks like, is way different than it is 10 years down the road. Absolutely. hundred, 110%. And what's great too, is my partner, he'll, he'll remind me of that, right? Like, Hey, like this, we need to have a big picture viewpoint because it can be so easy on the day to day to get really discouraged. Right. Like I mean, I was talking about, sometimes you take that one step forward and you're so excited and then it's 50 million steps backward and you're like, what happened? Um, so just to be able to have that big picture viewpoint too, I think is so important, which I think is, you know, what you guys have been talking about a lot is, this is, hey, this is our lifestyle. This is something we're committed to for the long run. One day doesn't define, right, this whole journey that we've been going on. Yeah, I'd love to be able to say that we have, you know, there, there is a, there's like this end point where it's going to be super easy after that. It's going to be easy street and we're going to have a house with no kids and we're going to be like empty nesters who go travel the world. And yeah, Amanda might be laughing at me there, I think. <laughs> but I am. <laughs> the truth is, is I don't know that I don't know, you know, if or when we'll ever turn this off. It's just become such a part of our life. And honestly, the things we have learned here, the kids, the wisdom of toddlers sometimes is is staggering and i've been able to learn so much from them that when when i talk with grown adults a lot of times people who are struggling through something i i can hand them some of the wisdom that toddlers taught me and just spread that it's like wow this this journey is so very hard so very difficult and so very worth it because these kids if we don't do this today if we're not taking care of these kids today we're going to take care of them 20 years from now I mean, we're going to take care of them through our taxes and the and the prison system, and you know, because that's what's going to happen if nobody takes care of them. Because what child effectively raises themselves and goes out and becomes a constructive member of society when it was never modeled for them once? No, absolutely, absolutely. I'm so glad you hit on that because that's something we're so passionate about, both Rachel and I, and that's why we started the podcast too. Is we were looking at the statistics, right, of kids who age out of foster care, and it's so dire. And there's a huge percentage who ends up dying within a few years of leaving care. And yeah, I wish people just understood that immediacy more. Like you're talking about, like if we're not taking care of the kids now, yeah, it's really, really dire. Because how can we expect someone to just know how to live life? We can't, right? And people are also not born knowing how to be good parents too, right? That's a journey that we all have to go on or to be a good mentor in Rachel's work. Yeah. That's what I tell the kids in care of my home too, is I'm just like, you know what? I'm learning and growing too. Like I'm trying to teach you some new skills. I'm also trying to learn new skills. Like we're all in the same boat together. And that's what life is, is it's learning. It's dealing with frustrations. You know, my job isn't to just remove every obstacle for them in life. No, my job is to teach them how to face life's obstacles, you know, even though they were given a really unfair hand to deal with at the beginning. 
And I love what you're saying too, is like, there are, there is some joy in this work, right? And just, there's some moments with kids and they can teach you so much, right? I feel like they teach us almost sometimes more than we teach them, right? Oh yeah. I have some of those moments that are burned into my life and, you know, I talk about a moments cause they called him a, um, but, uh, I'm not, I don't use his, his, his actual name. It just is his little short code for us. He was a, and he, he taught me some things. And I, I watched a kid who was diagnosed with reactive attachment disorder and he was right at that last moment where he could form healthy attachments in his, in that stage of development. And I watched a moment where that attachment was actually manifested in his life where he, he was, we were out in public and he suddenly decided that this place was an okay place for him to play, for him to be okay with the world, to not be terrified. And most people will never understand what that is or what that looks like. But I knew this kid, he'd been with us for over a year at that point. He was terrified of the world and to watch the moment he was willing to play in public. And I was like, holy crap, nobody else understands what this is. And I'm looking at him in the middle of the store and the gal behind the counter is like, oh, he's fine. I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. He doesn't do this. I'm like just dumbfounded watching. And and she kneels down and she says, hey, buddy, and kind of smiles at him. And I thought, well, you done ruined it because he is terrified of everybody. And I watched the moment where he stopped and he looked at this woman and then he smiled. To that point, he had never done that once. Every time he would spider monkey right up on my shoulders and hide because nobody gets in my face and talks about how cute you are. You know, that's his place he could hide. That was his place he was protected. And he smiled. He didn't reach for protection. He reached for connection. And I was like, holy crap. We just saw a kid go, a kid who was already diagnosed as reactive attachment, start to see what healthy attachment looks like. His world has changed forever. And I didn't do anything to do that other than to create an environment where he could where he could start to do that. He could feel safe connecting with humans. That's all we did in our house for him. And so it, some of those things have just been so amazing to watch and know that sometimes you have to do so little to make such a huge difference in the, in the world. And, and I talk about the 100-year the difference a lot. 100 years from now, this world will be different because we were in it period end of story it will you get to write what that difference is you get to tell that story and for that one honestly you know kids with reactive attachment that could go pretty far that that's one of those places where psychopaths can come from not always but it's entirely possible and for that kid to have found healthy attachment and not gone down that road that changed the whole world and nobody in the world will ever know it because they didn't see what it was coming to be. But the world is different because of that experience. Yeah, like Rachel touched on before, it's really generational work, right? Because the foster care system is so cyclical generationally. And, you know, now you've impacted A's generations, you know, to come. Oh, yeah. And my dad taught me that. I watched him, I watched him give out some of who he was to a handful of kids. My dad was a police officer. And he mentored teen boys. God love him. I don't... Unlike teenagers when I was one, teenage years are tough for me to deal with. My dad was a magician when it came to teenage boys. And and I watched him mentor teenage boys and change who they were 100%. It was just so powerful. And I think that's a lot of the reason why, why this is such important work to me is because I've seen what it can do. And I know how important it is. If nobody does it, what, where were we going to end up? All right, guys. Well, I just really want to thank you guys for sharing this conversation with us today because this is really important stuff. And I hope people can understand that whether you're, you know, a crazy foster parent like Amanda or I who've 
yeah, I said hi and bye to like 20 or 30 kids or, you know, like, you know, Natasha, you guys getting into it. Like first time being a parent's like, okay, I'm sorry, but that's a little crazier than our story because we already had kids. We, we'd already, you know, dealt with all that stuff and had to, had to fight those fights from, from the, the biological standpoint or, or Rachel, what you're doing with, with moms in prison or with kids in care and, and just reach out and showing people because that's that question. Everybody, well, I, I can't be a foster. I couldn't do that. Well, guess what? There's a million things you could do. And, um, I think you're, you're a living example of that. And these are all important perspectives for people to understand. This is this is just different people on different journeys, all reaching towards the same goal. And and I hope we, we can all figure out exactly how to how to convince other people to join us on this journey. So thank Absolutely, you. Absolutely, thank you. Yeah, yeah, thank you so much for having us. It was so great to talk with you and see all the similarities of our approaches. And um, two, for listeners, if they're interested in getting involved in foster care and all the variety of ways to do that, we do have. Um, a blog post on our website titled how to get involved in foster care in bigger, small ways um, that people can check out too. And we have other resources too, for um, people interested in taking that plunge at just special.com. Okay. Just special.com. We will make sure that that is in the show notes and um, I'm going to write it down. So I don't forget it because when I go to edit this at some point and try and figure out, fill out all the show notes, I'll be like, I know what that website was. And if I write it down, <laughs> I don't feel as dumb, <laughs> but no, I, I do, I do want to just, you know, talk to you guys for just a quick second about how important this is and, and what you guys are doing and telling your story. It's so hard for some people to come out and talk about these hard things. Some of the mistakes we made, mm-hmm. you know, my mm-hmm. God, have I screwed up? <laughs> and if, yeah, same. I, I hope everybody can admit to their screw ups because that's when where some of the biggest lessons have come from and helped mm-hmm. us out so much. So you guys being willing to come out and talk about this story, it will uh, help us to uh, hopefully reach out to a whole new generation of people, you know, because we're the old folks in this conversation. Hmm. Speak for yourself. Yeah. I th- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Speak for yourself. You're old, not me. I, I didn't look at you until after I said How old are it. you, Jason? I'm 44. Oh, okay. And some, yeah, you're, the, you're the old one. Yeah, yes. yeah. I'm that way a lot. I'm that way a lot. <laughs> Fortunately, I'm not too gray yet, so nobody knows it too much yet. <laughs> I probably have more whites than you do. Yeah, I have a lot coming in. Right now. That's life. <laughs> I, I look at my kids and blame. I'm like, you see this little, this little spot right here? That's your fault. Yeah, that's you. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they've been stressful, but they've also been such a blessing. And that's been one of the things that we've had to had to learn how to just sit back and accept that, man, this is hard and it's worth it. And, and put that mm-hmm. together in that perspective. It is hard, but it is worth it. No, that's so true. That's a good way to look at it. And thank you so much. Like, it was great to hear your guys' stories, too. Little pieces of it. (laughs) Okay, Foster Care Nation. Thank you for listening to Natasha and Rachel's story. Now take their knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you'd like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at fostercareuj at gmail.com. You can connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. Don't forget, we have a Patreon where you can support our mission for as little as $5 a month. It's at patreon.com slash fostercarenation. The links to everything are in the show notes on your podcast player or at fostercarenation. And as always, you are so super awesome. I thank you guys. Thank you for listening. Thanks, thanks, thanks. (laughs) 
Unparalleled Studios. Studios.